0: Good morning, it's good to see all of you, Um, so I'm quitting smoking, Um, no I'm kidding, I'm not stopping smoking, I I don't smoke, but you know, Uh, it sounds like this, Uh, my voice has been struggling, oh hello, thank you Erica, Um, my voice has been struggling some since Monday, so you're going to have to endure with my raspiness. Uh, I will do my very best not to start hacking into the uh, microphone. If I do, then I'm just going to cut the sermon short. Uh, I've been praying that my voice would hold out uh, long enough for the sermon. I'll just cut it short if it does, and um, Nick will come up and give some closing comments and lead us into the, uh, the next section of the service. So uh, I know right now, even so, some of you are starting to like, yes, maybe his voice will cut out early today and we'll get a a short one. I know. I know you. The Lord knows. Uh, No. Uh, So I'll try my best, and we'll see how far we get. Uh, Is it? Is Whitney here? Whitney. This is our last Sunday. What a punk. Uh, Reach out to Whitney Blondo before she leaves to the mainland uh, this week. Encourage her, call her, pray for her. Uh, She's going to be leaving for a year, Uh, or more, you never know how these things go, and representing our church really in Christ above all as she travels around the country uh, serving other churches as well. So uh, reach out to them when you get the chance. They're heading out to the mainland as well. So I just want to recognize that. We'll be in John 18. We're going to hone in on verses 1 through 11. Now, You'll notice we read a, a lot of Scripture, 40 verses. If it's your first time with us or your first time in a long time, uh, you'll notice we read a lot of Scripture. Why is that? Um, because in 1 Timothy chapter 4.13, Paul tells young Timothy to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to exhortation and to teaching. Uh, and so one of the things we want the, the, in our church to exemplify is that the Scripture, the Word of God, is our authority. Uh, no man's word, not my word, uh, but God's Word is the authority. And so we want it uh, to be central, and we believe it is the Word of God, and that it will give you life as you read it and hear it and follow it and trust Him. Uh, and so that's why we read a lot of Scripture. What we're going to do is we're going to hone in on verses 1 through 11, which means we're going to really skip a lot of the trial, which is a, a kind of a mockery in and of itself. It's a, it's a false trial. There's so many things wrong with the trial. They're, one, they're, they're directly questioning Jesus. Who is the defendant in this case? They're, they're directly questioning him before they've consulted witnesses or anything of that nature. Even in our own justice system, we have a little bit of an appreciation for this, and that what? You have the right to remain silent. The defendant doesn't have to say anything, because anything they say can and will be used against them in a court of law. You have the right not to make any self-incriminating statements. And so uh, the other side, the prosecution, must build their case through witnesses or other things. Uh, And and here we see Jesus uh, going straight to questioning. It is a mock trial. This is false. Uh, this This violates every rule of order in the Jews' own playbook of how they conduct trials. Uh, They also wouldn't do any capital case the day before a Sabbath or a major holiday, and yet here they are trying to get Christ killed, and not just killed, but crucified by Pilate. Uh, So we're just going to have to over, we're going to skip over a lot of this because we're moving at a pretty brisk pace through John. Uh, That also means we're going to skip Peter's denials. We're going to skip Peter's all of that. We're not going to spend a ton of time on that in this sermon. Uh, we will come back to Peter because Peter plays a p- very prominent role in John's gospel. So John will circle back around to Peter. Remember I talked about how, how I'm not just skipping Scripture for the sake of sk- skipping Scripture. John is very elliptical in his writing. He, he does passes and circles. So what we're going to do is I'm going to skip part of this about Peter. We're going to hit it on the next pass and kind of wrap it all together. So we're going to miss that. There's a lot of good instruction there for us in Peter's denial. Um, what we're going to focus on is 1 through 11. Is verses 1-11. Through eleven. Anybody ever seen cops? Who's seen cops, All right. Yeah, all right. You like bad boys, bad boys, right? Uh, and I mean, you just like you, it's it's action packed. You get to see almost like reality TV style, first person, the, the just kind of these guys running and doing silly kind of stuff, uh, and, and then the officers catching them, right? And and really, this would be kind of your. Your episode of cops in you know first century Jerusalem A.D. It's the arrest of Jesus. You're going to see what happens to these officers who go out to arrest our Lord and Savior, and, and it's really quite staggering. So, uh, where are we at in the layout of John? So this is John 18. The upper room discourse, his kind of farewell speech, is completed. John 13 through 16 is the upper room discourse. That's his private words to his inner eleven disciples, right? That's not public discourse. That is himself in a room kind of giving them his last instructions uh, before everything sets in motion. Uh, John 17, the priestly prayer of Jesus, is also completed. We're done with that. And now what's happened during that discourse is the narrative, and what I mean by narrative plot, uh, has been it has been moving forward since John 1, right? It's, he did this, and he did this, and this sign, and the, the water turned to blood, and he brought Naz- uh, Lazarus back from the dead, and, and all these, it, the, the plot has been driving forward, and in chapter 13, it came to a halt. It stopped. It was on pause for his whole discourse, for his conversation with his inner eleven. And now in chapter 18, what's going to happen is it's going to shift, and the plot starts to march forward again towards the crucifixion. And so you're going to see this rapid logging of events almost resuming. Now, this is very important. Why is this important? So remember what you're reading. You hold in your hands a very ancient book. Is an ancient book. Yes, it's printed on new paper, and maybe you have nice leather bound, or uh, even for some of you, your digital copy, so you can check ESPN and other things while you're in between points and things like that, right? So I know what's up. I know what's up, all right? Um, some of you do this. So uh, it may be very new styles, but it's a very ancient book. And it's written in an ancient manner. And what you have in the gospel, according to John, is a genre of literature. Uh, You know what a genre is. You have poetry and uh, historical novels and historical dramas. All these types of genres. Action. Suspense, thriller, horror, these are genres. And what you have in your hand when you come to the gospel is a genre of literature. And so you could define gospel genre as, as historical narrative. So it's a story, his story, his story, right? You have a true story, a historical narrative, motivated, it's not just a, a logging of events, motivated by theological concern. You have a historical narrative motivated by theological concern. What does that mean? That means that we shouldn't read them as just a mere reporting or logging of events, like a news story. But rather, we must interpret the events in light of everything that John's told us about Jesus so far. John tells us explicitly what his motivation is in logging these events. He tells us over and over again. And in no uncertain terms at the end of the gospel, he puts all of his cards on the table for you. John twenty thirty one. Thank you, thank you. Appreciate it. I'll be doing a few of these breaks throughout. He tells us what his motivation is, what the overarching goal is in John twenty thirty one. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John shows his cards, right? He's not going to do a bait and switch for you. Uh, He's showing his cards. He's making explicit what his goal is. And what my goal is in preaching to you this morning is that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. That's the goal, that you would believe. Now, some of you are here, and you're like, I am a Christian, I already believe, so I can leave, right? No, because if you struggle with sin... If you struggle with temptation and transgression, that is a, de- a struggle to believe. You are struggling to believe God's word towards you that Christ is better. Sin is a departure from the faith, it is a denial of the faith. It is what Peter did to Jesus. I don't know him. And so, if you're a Christian this morning, don't think this sermon is not for you because you believe. Your challenge is to keep believing, to keep pressing on in the faith, to keep standing firm in the promises of Christ. So I not only pray that if you are an unbeliever, that you would believe this morning, but that if you are a believer, that you would stand firm in your faith against the trials and things that may tempt you. So that's the goal, that you would believe. And not just a knowing of facts or a mere acknowledging that a man named Jesus lived and that Jesus was a good teacher or a moral man, but that you would actually believe that he is the unique Son of God and that by this faith that you would have life. And this is exactly what we saw in John 1 4, isn't it? I'm trying to bring together threads of John's gospel. John 1 4, you remember. uh, In him was life. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So before I launch into my sermon, let me ask you what do you want this morning? Do you want life? Some of you are alive, but I think you might barely call it living. Do you want life? Do you want an abundant life? Or I could ask it like this What captivates you this morning? Here's one What does penal substitution have to do with your joy today and forever? Oh, where did that come from? We'll get there. What does penal substitution have to do with your joy today? And forever. I hope some of those questions are answered for you from the text. Let's pray. Father, would you, would your word, would your voice through your word be prominent today? May you speak to your people, may you feed your people, and above all, may we be captivated by Christ as we leave here. Lord, would you give me strength in my voice as your servant to speak your word the way you would have it to be preached, and we know that you are sovereign over all things. I ask if there are any here who are visiting, or maybe who have never placed saving faith in Christ, that they would today, that they wouldn't wait, but that they would turn from their sin and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the sermon John 18, 1 through 11, is arrested by Jesus. Arrested by Jesus. So as we examine his arrest, uh, I want you, rather, to be arrested by Jesus. I have five points. Like, oh my goodness, five points. We'll see how many we get to. Five points, they all start with arrested. I want you to be arrested by his perseverance by his person, by his power, by his protection, and by his plan. She would be arrested by his perseverance, number one. And my hope is that like the ones who were initially affecting the arrest, rather they found that Jesus was arresting them, that he was in absolute control then and today. So we're going to start, number one, arrested by his perseverance in verse number four. Check it out. Go to John 18, verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Where do I get perseverance there? It's in that first section, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward. I want you to see the perseverance of Christ in the face of opposition. He knew what was laying before him, the trail of suffering, the trail of tears, the trail, he's going to call in a moment the cup of the wrath of God. And yet we see his perseverance. And this is John's contribution to his gospel, uh, to the gospels at large, actually, is that Jesus is not just the Son of God. He is the unique, the only begotten Son of God, not created but begotten. That there was never a time when he was not. And that since the beginning of time, the Son, has lived in perfect harmony and obedience to the will of the Father. Amen. And that perseverant obedience is now going to be tested as he has to endure opposition, endure pain, endure wrath. And what we're going to find and what arrests our attention, what captivates our attention this morning is how perseverant he is in his obedience. It's not in just the face of opposition. That opposition takes a very cruel turn. See, opposition by strangers is hard enough, isn't it? Opposition by strangers can be very challenging. But his wasn't just opposition by strangers, but go to verses 2 and verse 5. It says this. Now Judas, what? Who betrayed him? also knew the place. In verse 5, it mentions this again. It highlights his betrayal. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And then here it is, Judas, what? Who betrayed him. Even in the Lord's Supper, whenever, uh, whenever we're going through the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, this is the way it's framed. Uh, our Lord Jesus, in the night he was Betrayed. So the opposition that Christ encountered here wasn't just opposition of strangers, but it was one of the most painful oppositions that in our human experience we can ever uh, go through. It is that of betrayal of somebody who's very close to you and then turns on you and betrays you. This is one of the most painful forms of opposition, is that of betrayal. And yet Jesus is here, Persevering in the face of this betrayal. But not just persevering in betrayal, not just opposition from strangers, not just the betrayal of friends, but even his very own friends who are not going to actively betray him, but they will actively abandon him and deny him, won't they? Every single one of his apostles are going to scatter. Peter, the leader, is going to deny him, not once, not twice, but three times. Now, all of this, of course, happened in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And why is this important? Because it highlights the absolute isolation, the fullness, the totality of loneliness and wrath and suffering that the Savior would undergo. He truly and uniquely was abandoned and alone like none of us will ever feel or experience, because he was truly abandoned by the Father himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the Son underwent a unique form of wrath and punishment that none of us as children of God will ever have to undergo. And he did that so that we would never have to experience such things. And if you think about it, how many of you have ever struggled with loneliness? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have ever struggled with loneliness, or, uh, sometimes loneliness uh, at being at home or being around people? And this loneliness is a strange thing because you can be around people that you love and that maybe you know love you and yet still feel very isolated and alone, like nobody understands you, nobody gets you, right? And that can be very painful and prolonged. This is comforting for us because it shows that our high priest was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, and that he uniquely, Jesus uniquely is qualified to offer help and hope to you in time of need. One of the things that often comes up that people like to say is, well, you can't, you can't speak to me unless you've been where I've been, right? You don't understand me unless you've gone through what I've gone through. Certainly, there's an element of truth to this, and I would say Jesus was tempted in every way as you are, and that he alone, more than any man on the planet, is able to offer you hope and comfort in your time of need if you would trust him and turn to him. He perseveres in the face of opposition, in the face of betrayal, in the face of abandonment. How can you not be captivated, arrested by the glory of the obedient son in all things? And not just that, it's this ironclad resolve. It says he set his face like a stone, like a flint to Jerusalem. This ironclad resolve is literally what earned your positive standing before God in Christ. See, it's not just enough that he paid the penalty for sin, Right, so here's the law of God, right? We'll think about the Ten Commandments summary, the law of God, right? Uh, And to break the law is to earn the the wage of sin is what? Death, right? It's not just enough that we have broken the law of God. And therefore, he died in our place. That's not enough. Because the law positively commands absolute moral righteousness, adherence to the law. So it's not just an absence of breaking the law, but it demands that we keep the law for life. We need both. We need somebody to pay our penalty, and we need somebody to keep it on our behalf because we cannot. And it is this resolve of the obedient son that earned our redemption, And when we exercise faith in Christ, when we wholeheartedly turn and trust that Jesus alone will deliver me from my sin, the mystery of faith is that we are united with Christ. And so our sin is put on him and his righteousness is accounted to us. And it's this great exchange of Romans chapter 5. And it is this obedience of the Son, this persevering obedience of the Son that earned this righteousness for his children. Would you be arrested by this perseverance this morning? As you think about this, as you, as you put yourself in the garden. Interesting, he was in a garden, right? And he was arrested and betrayed. Because the Bible, the story of God began where? In a garden. And his resurrection appearance is going to be where? In a garden. And see, you see the Lord working all things and connecting all sorts of things. So be arrested by his perseverance. Number two, be arrested by his person. Verse 5. I'm going to take a break here. Be arrested by his person. Verse 5. Jesus came forward in verse 4 and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. I am he. Now, in your English translations, you're going to see a he there. That is actually supplied by the translators. There it is. You'll see it says, Jesus said to them, I am he. Uh, the he is supplied by the translators. It's required um, in the English language because we don't normally just talk. We don't use subject verb without a direct object. It's an incomplete sentence for us. Uh, and so either the object's either understood or, or something. So they put it there for clarity, I am he. But in the Greek, it's actually just ego, amy. Just drop the he, and what does it say? That's interesting, isn't it? No. Yes, yes, very interesting. Why is it interesting, you ask? It's very interesting because in Exodus chapter 3, when, when God the Father revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai from a burning bush that was on fire, yet it wasn't consumed, uh, and he's, God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And Moses is like, no, I don't think you got the wrong guy, right? And anyways, he says, okay, well, who am I going to say sent me? Why would I go to Pharaoh, the, the most powerful man, and say, let my people go? Who am I going to say sent me? What God, what name ought I to use? And he said, tell him that. I am sent you. I am that I am. That's just me. I have always been. I have never come in to be. I've just, I exist. I am the self-existent one, not created. I sustain all things. I mean, you just, you go into Exodus 3 and it just all sorts of things are there. That is God's personal name. And in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in the Septuagint, this is the exact wording you would find in Exodus chapter 3. The exact wording. It would be one-to-one, parallel, right there. It's the final I am statement of John. We've had several I am statements from John, uh, starting in chapter 6. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And now, this final and the most important one is I am. Now, what's important this morning, beloved and visitors, is that Jesus will not allow you to remain neutral concerning who you think he is. You can't remain neutral. In other words, what do I mean by that? You can't sit here. Jesus doesn't allow you to sit here this morning or any morning or any day and think he was just a good teacher. A lot of people will say that. I I mean, I, I really respect Christianity. I think Jesus was a good man. He was a good teacher. He surely did good things. He helped the poor and the needy. He stood up for the oppressed. Those are all lovely things, and I really admire that about Jesus. But, you know, Buddha and Gandhi and all these others have much value to him. No, 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 no. Jesus stands above them because Jesus made outrageous claims. This is one of them. He said outrageous things that nobody says claiming to be I am, taking the name of the God of Old Testament Israel and putting it on himself? I am? No, no man does that. Or when his very first two, uh, some of his first disciples, Philip and Nathaniel, come up to him. And he says to one of them, you know what, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Wait, what? What do you mean, where were you, creeper? Nobody says that. Or when he's talking to the, his opponents in John 7 and 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham's been dead for a thousand years. What do you mean before Abraham was, you were? See, Jesus doesn't allow you to remain neutral as to who you believe he is. And if you think he was a good teacher... With all due respect, it actually shows you don't know anything of what he actually taught. Just being honest. If you say he was a good teacher and you don't follow him, then it shows you don't really actually know what he taught. Because if you knew what he taught, they would, it would boggle your mind. You would not think he was a good teacher. He said outrageous things. And he did outrageous things. And his claim was nothing less than that he was the one true God, the Word made flesh. That's what he said about himself. That's what his followers said about him at the cost of their very own lives. That's what his opponents said about him, that he blasphemed, that he, being a man, made himself out to be God. His opponents said that about him. They understood what he was saying. But what you can't do this morning is sit here and remain neutral and say he was a good man. You can't. He doesn't allow you to do so. You have to wrestle with his claims. He is either the one true God, Lord, he is the Lord, and you ought to follow him then. Or he is a liar or crazy, and it doesn't matter what he said, and you should never step church, step, step your foot in a church again. doesn't matter what he said. You don't have to deal with it because he's crazy. Those are the only two options before you, if you're being intellectually honest. Those are the only two options, that you would either worship him or run from him. That's all you have. I pray this morning, as you look at his person, as that you would be captivated by his person, that what he says is true. And if it's true, then believe him and follow him at the cost of everything else in your life. The cost of everything else in your life. It's my hope that you would be arrested by his person. Number three, that you would be arrested by his power. His power gives credence to the claim of his personhood. In other words, anybody could say, I am. He can stand outside and say, I am. I am. You can go tomorrow. You leave this church, walk outside and say, I am. His power gives credence to his profession, if you will. Verse number six. See, what happened when he said, I am? When Jesus said to them, I am, what happened? They drew back And fell to the ground. They drew back and fell to the ground. Can you just picture this scene? All right, it's dark, it's dark outside. We come out at nighttime to arrest him, uh, there's about 200, if you, do, if you study this, there's about 200 uh, officers and Roman soldiers uh, with swords and clubs and other weaponry to come out and arrest this man. Now, why would they come with weapons? Because they viewed Jesus as an insurrectionist. All right, they thought he might try and the way he's being painted out by his opponents is that he might try and stir up a revolt. And remember, this is during one of the biggest, this is Passover, this is one of the biggest celebrations in the Jewish year. So Israel would swell to like a million people this time of year. I mean, it's just crazy. There's just a ton of people. And you can imagine they're all feeling oppressed by the Roman government. Uh, it could be a powder keg if something were to erupt and a riot were to go on. They would be easily outnumbered. And so they come with 200 men to this famous Jewish teacher, this rabbi, and now they're going to arrest him. And they're looking for him. It's dark. And now here's his 11, and they're all obviously surrounded, and Peter's a little on edge, obviously. And, and they ask, whom do you seek? He said, Jesus of Nazareth, I am, and 200 soldiers phew, lose their footing, fall down. All of them. Not like, you know, two of them. Oh, that's Larry. He always falls. <laughs> right? He's a moron, that guy. He trips over nothing, right? All of them. All of them fall. Now, if you're a soldier or an officer, a police officer today, if you were a soldier, what is the worst thing that could happen to you during a battle or any engagement? She would fall down, she would lose your footing, she would str- fall and stumble. Uh, I, you guys know I've been watching these like nature things with my children right, from Disney, and they're just fascinating. Um, they show, uh, you know, all this this nature video out in the middle of the African savanna somewhere, and, and it's like high def and slow motion, and and I was watching this this cheetah, right? And you know, cheetahs, amazing, right? They're just and it's slow motion, and they're showing this cheetah chasing this baby antelope, and it's all you can see their muscles like, right? They're doing this whole thing, and and we're watching it. I'm just. I'm captivated. I'm like, this is amazing. And this is a high-speed chase. And the cheetah actually didn't catch the baby antelope by pure foot power. And you know what happened? The baby antelope, while he's running for his life, he tripped. He tripped. He lost his footing. And it shows him stumbling. Boom, boom. And what do you think happened? I wondered if it would show it. And it did. My children are like, <laughs> you know, whoa. And sure enough, the cheetah just. <sighs> the worst thing that can happen is that you would lose your footing. And here we see Jesus in response to his profession I am laying the div- in claim to the divine title like no man ever has. In response to that, a show of power, 200 Roman legionnaires knocked down flat. Now, if you walk in that parking lot and you do that, I might pay a little bit of attention to you. I might listen to what you had to say a little bit more. It's amazing. It's amazing. His power, everybody fell down. And what is the point of this? One, it's showing he is who he claimed to be. Two. It's showing that Jesus, and Jesus alone, is in absolute control. His life was not taken from him. He was not a victim of political parties and, and unhappy circumstances, as is often painted by National Geographic and other Discovery Channel series around Easter. And uh, he, he wasn't a, a mere victim of the time. His life was given, not taken. That's the point. He's in control. That's what he said to Pilate, isn't it? He said, are you a king? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be what? Fighting. I'm in absolute control here, not you. you would be arrested by his power this morning. Number four, this will be a brief point, that you would be arrested by his protection. Verses eight and nine. She would be arrested by his protection. This is what he says. Jesus answered, after they all get up and dust themselves off and wondered what happened, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And then Peter goes berserker mode and tries to cut off people's ears or heads. That you'd be arrested by his protection for his his people. By his protection for his people. Why is this significant? Because generally, uh, if you're a Roman uh, governor like Pilate or something, and you arrest an insurrectionist, you're going to also arrest everybody who's with him and what's going to happen to them. They're all going to die too, every single one of them. And so now Jesus here in his tender, shepherdly care for his people, you remember he prayed that you would keep them from the evil one, is now working out for the good of his people, that they would not be killed in, before their time. Not only is Jesus in absolute control of his life, he's in absolute control of his people's lives. What does that mean for you this morning? Jesus is in absolute control of the circumstances, of the opposition, of the trial in your life today. Amen. Absolute control. And it also means he is absolutely working for your protection today. He ever leads, to, lives to intercede for his people. So I would, that you'd be arrested by his protection. And then the last point, we'll spend a little bit of time, we'll close out here, that you would be arrested by his plan. That you would be arrested by his plan. Like I said, my, the, the goal of John is not that you would just read this rapid logging of events, uh, but that you would pay special care and attention to interpret these events uh, with everything he said before. And John gives us some clues as to what he wants us to cue in on in this section of the Scriptures. And those clues are in verses 11 and verse 14. Verse 11 and verse 14, this is what it says. So Peter just uh, tried to cut off the servant's head, and he missed his head and hit his ear instead. And we could talk a lot about that. That's a really neat passage of Scripture. Um, You could also ask this. If you're a skeptic of the Christian faith this morning, or maybe you don't trust and follow, uh, maybe you think the Bible's been uh, changed and altered, like the telephone game or something of that nature, Uh, this is an interesting little detail that's preserved for us in verse 10. The servant's name was what? How would you how would you get that? How would you get that detail? Unless maybe you were a witness and one of your sources was right there in the event. Otherwise, how would you get the name of the servant? It's a very interesting question to ask yourself. These are historical documents for you this morning, an ancient record of what happened. But verse 11 and 14 is really where John kind of gives us the clues as to what he wants us, how he wants us to interpret these events. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? That's clue number one. How ought you interpret these events, what's happening? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Clue number two, verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. It was Caiaphas, the high priest, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient or beneficial that one man should die for the people. I'm going to take a pause there. Think about that. All right. Finish off here. You ready? I would that you would be arrested by his plan. That Christ died as a substitution is what John wants us to see and take away from this chain of events. What's happening, what's kicked off, is the plan of the Father for the Son to drink the cup of the wrath of God and to die as a substitute for his people. So I'm going to give you a big theological word. you ready for it? I said at the beginning of the sermon, uh, now this is a very, very important concept and word we'll flesh out in detail at another time. I'm going to hint at it now and give you a little brief overview. It's called penal substitution. Penal from penalty, that type of penal. Penal substitution. Christ died as a substitutionary atonement for our sins and took the wrath of God in our place. In our place. And I asked you, what does that have to do with your joy today and forever? It has everything to do with your joy today. Everything. See, Christ would actually not theoretically, but actually bear the wrath of God for all the sins of all people who believe in Him. He would actually stand in your place as a substitute. This is really what the Old Testament sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus and Exodus point to, isn't it? Once a year, a lamb, a pure lamb, spotless lamb, on the day of atonement, the, the high priest would come and lay his hands on the head of this lamb, and there would actually be two of them. One would be sent off away into exile to die, and the other one would be slaughtered. And, and by laying his hand on his head was symbolizing a transference of their guilt, of their sins, onto the lamb, and the lamb would then be slaughtered in the place of Israel. And they would do this year after year after year to remind them that their sins were not taken away. They were not ultimately done away with, but they needed a better sacrifice to come. And John the Baptist would stand and look at Jesus one day and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does he take it away? He takes it away by drinking the full cup of the wrath of God, by draining it every last drop. There's no leftovers. He takes it all. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given to me, Peter? Why do we need a substitute? This is very important. You should ask that question. Why do I even need a substitute? The scriptures say the wages of sin is death, eternal death, physical death, and Jesus bore both penalties. If the wages of sin is death, that means for you to be forgiven, your penalty has to be borne. It can't just be whited out. It has to actually be taken care of if God is going to be merciful to you or else God would be unjust. Because you committed real sins, real transgressions that require real payment of those sins. And Jesus bore that death. And by faith, you are united to him and your sin is accounted to him. Now, why does this have to do with your joy? Remember, I could say so much more about this. We will in time. Why does this have to do with your joy today and forever? Because everybody in here has a past, don't you? Think about it. You all have a past. You have things that you've done that you've regretted. You have things that were done to you that you regretted. Some of you have things you're doing now that you regret. Everybody has a past. And it would be nice if that past stayed in the past, wouldn't it? But it often doesn't. It often comes out when we least desire it to or expect it to because the reality is our life experience, our experiences, events that have happened to us inevitably shape who we are, don't they? Inevitably, they shape and mold who we are. And some of those events send shockwaves throughout your entire life. See, in your only hope, and coming to terms with those events, with those painful memories, is in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for sinners. What do I mean? These events are painful because they involve sin somehow. Either your sin against somebody, somebody's sin against you, or generally the suffering or the effects of sin in general in all of creation, like sickness, cancers, and things of that nature, don't hear me say that, uh, that because you sin, there's cancer. No, I'm not saying that. But because sin exists, our bodies don't work the way they ought to work. And things like cancer and other chronic illnesses happen. See, these events all somehow involve sin And God has not made any allotments, any provisions to undo that or to go in the past and change it. He's done something much, much better. He's made provision of Himself. He Himself has provided to pay the price for all of your failures, for all of your responses, for all the things you've done that you wish you wouldn't have done or said that you shouldn't have said. He Himself has provided to pay the price for that if you would trust in Him and turn from them if you would trust in him and turn from them. He's taken the penalty that you deserve, that you committed, the sins you committed, and he's taken that on himself by faith, if you will turn and believe, if you will turn and believe. If you will not turn and believe, you will bear your own wrath. You will stand as your own wrath bearer if you do not turn and believe. If you reject that this morning, you will stand before judgment. No substitute. But if you turn, if you trust him, then he has allowed that all those things will be redeemed, will be redeemed, not wasted. And he will use your pains, your failures, your heartaches, and in his purposes and plan and his infinite mind, he will work all those things together for good, for your ultimate joy and glory today and forevermore. And this changes everything everything. This changes everything. I'm just going to give you a few and then I'll be closed. For the Christian, it means you're not working off a debt to God. So in your obedience to Christ, to God, when you wake up in the morning, it's not as if, well, I've really messed up, so I need to really be better now to to kind of offset the the mess-ups I've done. You're not working off a debt to God. It means you're not trying to do enough good works to pay restitution for the life you lived. It is the grace of God, the free gift of God, that he died for your sins and purchased your redemption and now offers you life, now and forevermore. This means in your walk with Christ, if you are following him by faith, right? So you're a Christian here this morning in your walk with Christ and uh, some of you wrestle with this chronic feeling of guilt or shame, like you're not doing enough or like you fail constantly, all right? This isn't just one person who struggles with this. Lots of people struggle with this. You just regularly feel guilty or like you're failing at the Christian life. It means if Christ died as a sacrifice, it means that failure is not optional and it is not possible, but rather the victory is in Christ you will overcome why? because you're so great? no because God is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure that's why it means victory is sure walk in it it means that in your walk with Christ that you're not walking on eggshells you don't have to wonder whether God will love you tomorrow or not he does love you He will love you. He'll be there for you today and tomorrow and forevermore. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it means with others that you're free to forgive others who have sinned against you. I talked about how people have sinned against you. Some people have done awful things to you. Well, if you trust Christ, what about that? What about them? Because that's not your sin. That was somebody else, something else they did awful to you. What about that? It means it frees you up to forgive them. Why? Because if they're a Christian, then their sin was punished in Christ. If they're a Christian, if they're a Christian, their sin was punished in Christ. And if they are not a Christian, it means vengeance will be exacted in time. That God will, just, will judge justly. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It means you can forgive them freely because Christ died as your substitute. So I pray that you would be arrested by Christ, by his person, by his power, by his perseverance, by his provision, by his purpose, by his plan. Be arrested by Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you use your word? Would you build your people? We pray, and would you get much glory in Jesus' name? Amen. Now is a time.